Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. This is a very special episode for me, at least, because it is my final episode as the host of the Digiday Podcast. I will be leaving Digiday um, shortly in the next couple days after nearly a decade here. It's been an uh, amazing run and it has been amazing building this brand and um, glossy and modern retail uh, with a great team here. Um, wouldn't really change much of anything. Um, and I think one of the best parts of my job, no lie, over the last uh, three plus years has been hosting this podcast. It's allowed me to stay in touch with the market and talk to really fascinating people that have changed a lot of what I think about um, media to some degree. Um, and I want to thank all the guests, but um, also want to thank all of you for listening. I know one of the um, great things was going different places and running into people and saying, oh, I listen to you. Uh, I hear you when I go running or something. <laughs> so um, I don't know, that's been uh, really gratifying. So I want to thank you for taking the time. Um, and then finally, I want to thank uh, particularly Pierre Bienname. Pierre's our uh, producer. You don't hear from him, but um, he does all the hard work that makes this uh, a listenable experience. Um, so please enjoy this final episode that we have. Um, I am speaking with Jasper Wang. Jasper is a co-founder and the VP of Revenue at Defector Media, which is an interesting, um, interesting new publication from the sort of refugees of Deadspin. And I think it's part of a new wave of, of media brands that we're going to see out there. Hope you enjoy it. Jasper, welcome to the Digiday Podcast and my final podcast. Thank you so much. It's an honor. <laughs> This is no pressure, but you know, this is the last one I'm doing as the host of the Digiday podcast. So it, it we have to we have to do a good one. All right. Well put on a show. Let's, let's <laughs> make something newsworthy. Let's do it. Okay. Defector Media, um, fascinating um for those of us who have been uh, longtime deadspin uh, readers. I saw I saw in the New York Times that you've been reading it since you were 19. Well, I've been reading it since like I was 32, which makes me older than you. <laughs> um so tell us for for those who don't um those who do not know um explain exactly what defector is yeah so defector is a new sports blog and media company um, our founding team includes 18 people writers and editors who were all previously at deadspin uh, but quit last fall in a uh pretty public manner um, and we are a subscription-based website with a metered paywall, and subscriptions get you unlimited articles and a variety of other benefits. And we really are just focused on that subscription experience. Uh, so Deadspin um, was really one of the original blogs. I mean, it was part of Gawker, but really, I think about it um, back in that time of history. It was like sort of a a flowering of independent media um, and independent voices that were distinctive. Um, and Deadspin was absolutely at the the forefront of that. I'm sure that's what uh, that's what attracted you to it, right? As a reader. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, it was so voice driven and had just a perspective that not just as one full editorial team, but as individuals, um, you know, I think many of these writers have their own followings independent uh, of, of what they previously did at Deadspin and what they're doing at Defector. But uh, mm -hmm. combined, it's sort of a this beautiful esoteric in a variety of directions, but just interesting to go to and read every day. Yeah. And um, I don't know, were you a commenter? 
I was not. I was never funny enough to uh, get out okay. of the grays uh, to use the Kinja parlance. It was uh, Kinja. It was a very um, sorry R.I.P. It was it was one of the unique sort of um, places. It seems like where the the comments actually made a site better, not worse, and that is like really no mean feat. And I think what was what was interesting about Deadspin, I'm going to talk about it in the past tense, was that it really delivered on actually having a community, not an audience to some degree. I mean, yes, it had an audience, um, but there was a community aspect to it. And I want to go through that because I think that that makes for a powerful um, platform in which to build a media brand now. Yeah, I, I think we knew as we started Defector that we needed to replicate that feeling as much as we could. And so our comment system, uh, we actually have multi tiers and the base tier gets you unlimited articles so you can just be a reader. But the next tier up, we call it the PAL tier, uh, it gets you access to commenting. And so it is a self-selecting group of people who say, you know, it's worth it to me to shell out a little bit more money to be a part of this community. And, you know, we think it's self-policing in a really good, I mean, it's self-selecting certainly just through the, the paid model, but uh, there is a sense of self-policing and, and you know, our editors and, and writers have a pretty strong perspective as well on, you know, what is what makes for a good comment section. And uh, Albert Bernico put out a commenter manifesto on the first day. And, you know, by and large, we are seeing uh, sort of a regrowth of, of that community. And, and some of my favorite interactions have been people with commenter handles saying hi to each other in the comment section, not trying to be funny, just saying like, Hey, Hey, person who I've never met before, but you know, know from my time hanging out in a different website's comment section, great to run into you again down here. Yeah. So, you know, 18 former Deadspin employees, uh, right. That went over here. How did you become involved in this and what did you see from a business perspective? Because, um, you look at, I think the the test of every single brand is if it goes away, um, you know, people will go on Twitter and be upset for like a day and then they'll just move on and not even remember. Right. And I don't think Deadspin necessarily was, was, was that like, I do think, um, again, I'm going to talk about his past tense, even though there is still Deadspin, but, uh, it's, it's not the same is it was missed. I, I know I, I sort of missed it because of the uniqueness of its voice, but why, why did you think this could be like a business? Yeah, so for me, I got involved just through good fortune. I mean, I was a, a longtime reader, and it was my favorite website on the internet. And when it fell apart, I just cold emailed um, a bunch of the writers and editors who I knew were based in New York just to say, I'm so sorry this happened. I'd love to buy you a beer. Also, I'm just like a business guy who, if you're looking to do something, I'm happy to, to help out. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, they, I, I was surprised when they, they emailed back. I think there were a couple of other business types floating around. But, you know, I was the one who was tolerable enough and useful enough uh, that I got to stick around. And, um, you know, that sort of evolved into me formally taking on this role. Yeah. Um, I mean, as the business, I mean, this is a tough job, right? I mean, because like this is like getting someone on the rebound of like the worst possible relationship as far as I believe what the, the writers of Deadspin felt about the quote-unquote business people. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> that's absolutely right. There is um, a, a trauma, and I don't use that term lightly. There is there's trauma in you know, the, 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 the corporate governance that uh, they were coming from. 
Um, so explain a little bit for those who did not go through. I mean, this is like, you know, a million different like internet dramas ago. But like, um, explain succinctly the trauma. Uh, I will I will do my best. Uh, the Gawker uh, back in the day had a, an array of different uh, blogs of which Deadspin was one of them uh, with the Peter Thiel and Hogan lawsuit yeah. uh, several years ago. Uh, Gawker effectively went bankrupt and was sold off to Univision. Uh, Univision then uh, held onto it for something like 18 months and then sold it to a, a small private equity fund called Great Hill Partners. Um, throughout all of this, there was a just good corporate unrest, um, you know, sort of living that day to day. Sounds like it was very difficult to, to not know, um, you know, exactly where your paycheck was coming from, from next, uh, but then also led to um, with with the the final um, set of uh, business folks, uh, just major tension and disagreement about the direction and the editorial yeah. voice of the website uh, led to uh, Barry Pachowski, the deputy editor uh, at the time, being fired and everybody else um, walking out. Okay, so yeah, a lot of like you know unrest um, that led to you know, a massive upheaval. And also just, at least from the outside, um, a lot of disillusionment with the where digital media sort of had gone, right? I mean, I think, um, you know, you rarely miss things until until they're gone. But like, you know, if you go back in, in time, you know, Gawker was an incredibly um, independent company and had a unique voice, but it was also a very successful company. Um, you know, when, when Nick Denton had a, uh, published the, the, the figures before the lawsuit, they were pretty good. Like that's a pretty good business. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, a, it's hard to imagine, but like there was a time when advertising supported digital media businesses could be good businesses. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I think for, you know, to, to your original question of what did, what did I see here? You know, I am not like a, uh, the last time I worked full time in media was 2012, 2013. I mean, that's a lifetime ago in the digital media space. So I don't pretend to 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 be a uh, you know capital K knower of things. Uh, but you know, if I if I had to summarize um, the the business thesis for for me and for, and for us, it, it would be it would be four, four things. One is uh, you know we reject the idea that the media property brand is all that matters. Uh, you know, the bylines matter. The writers, the collective group of writers. That matters and people will follow uh, the writers. And, you know, we, we see that in the way that, you know, Substack is, is, is gaining success as well uh, of that point being proven out. Uh, yeah, go on. There was a few other points. Uh, so let me run through the, the rest. I think there was a clear need in the marketplace. You know, there's pretty little by way of accountability journalism in the sports space right now. ESPN, the magazine's gone. Sports Illustrated is pretty different. So there, there's just a, a gap in the sports coverage that's, um, you know, sort of antagonistic almost to, to power and authority. Uh, third, I think media consumers are just more and more comfortable with paying for content. Uh, this is a trend that gets talked about a lot on, on your podcast of, of just the, the speed with which subscriptions have really uh, grown, especially um, over the last six months with the pandemic. Yeah. And then finally, I think like a lot of industries, the technology and surrounding ecosystem uh, just make it theoretically easier than ever to put together a revenue generating company pretty quickly. So we outsource and partner 
on, on basically everything. At the moment, I am the one full-time operations person in-house, but um, Ali Interactive is a great web development partner. Stitcher is yeah. a great podcast production partner. We have, you know, array of other um, partners and, and lawyers and accountants and insurers and, and folks who have media expertise. Um, and so, you know, with the, 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 the hardest part is just the people willing to hold hands and jump together. And once you have that, building out the business scaffolding is, is probably easier than it's ever been. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Ali and, and Austin. They were our original um, site partners. Um, they allowed us to have like a basically no stack media company with zero people in technology. Um, and um, they, they did a great job with our sites anyway. So endorse Ali. Um, so talk to me a little bit because, I, uh, you know, I feel like media media always goes through these periods of bundling and unbundling. And it seems that, that, um, we're in a, a bit of a period of unbundling. Like you mentioned what we're seeing with, with Substack and with, um, with other sort of independent creators, if you will, like going off on their own or, or forming, forming collectives. And I think that there, it's an interesting model here in that it's a collective, um, you know, I had Steve Hayes on very different, very different type of collective, but it's, you know, they're doing the same thing with, with, um, some, you know, small C conservative voices and, uh, the dispatch. Um, so I think it's interesting to, to, can you talk a little bit about bridging that gap between, you know, building a brand, you know, with the collective, but still having that sort of independent creator voice that is within that brand. Cause I think sometimes they're, they're, almost viewed oppositionally. Yeah, I think with this group of writers and editors, that tension did not really exist. Like the, the where we have landed as a true company of full-time co-owners and employees for whom this is their primary job. I think that was always the vision. I, I, I know what you're saying in terms of, you know, it's sort of on a spectrum of of, of are you an individual creator and, and to what extent you are affiliated with others. But for, for this team, I, I mean, they just genuinely enjoyed working together. Um, you know, you could imagine right. versions of this where they all uh, started their own Substack and, and, yeah. and would have found success. But I, I think there was just something about, to your point, a community uh, of, of readers who were all brought in from these different angles that the writers had. And, and just even just, I don't, you know, messing around in Slack all day yeah. is the most fun part of having a job sometimes. Right. And uh, so it was never a question for these these folks, whether they were going to go their separate ways, really. Yeah, I think all of the the sort of predictions that, you know, people are, are, are all spinning off. They want to do all their own like sub stacks and be independent and entrepreneurial and stuff like this misses an essential <laughs> reality of journalists and and creators they like to work with other people like you know they might seem grumpy on twitter but they actually like love to just like spend all day like snarky nonstop in slack i know it's the number one thing i'm going to miss actually come <laughs> wednesday <laughs> yeah exactly and, and i think and, and where i come in you know i i really think of myself as as operator and not you know business strategist or or, or whatever my my job here is to make all of their lives easier, make sure our, you know, media liability insurance is, is yeah. in a good place. You know, payroll gets executed and health insurance is all there and all that, all of that, those pieces of a business, 
you know, I, I know uh, like uh, Substack is offering, they have a legal defense fund. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're moving towards sort of whatever the shared services. Um, I think that that's really what makes the difference between a one person shop and a company is you can, you can spread the cost of those things and uh, not worry about that. Because otherwise, if you're, you're a one person entrepreneur, you know, those things are still in the back of your head, but uh, you, you maybe can't uh, address them until you get to a certain scale. And, and that'll take some time. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of services that need to be provided for for this to to work, right? I mean, I always go back to like the Shopify model, and um, I've I've mentioned this to to Substack, like you know, you need to become the Shopify. I mean, Shopify does some essential um, functions in order to have like a modern commerce business, but there's a lot of different functions that 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 they that they need to provide in order for their merchants to um succeed and like the those are different but non-trivial i i feel like for independent publishing ventures um and also like we've seen this before right just in a worse model with an ad model like there was a lot of people popping up claiming that there was going to be all these independent creators and feed burner and all this stuff like this. And it was all going to be supported by this explosion of ads and didn't work. Um, So what's different this time? Like, why does this work with subscriptions where it failed with ads? So again, to my point, I I don't want to be a a media knower, capital M, capital K. That's fine. It's a podcast. We're all that. Nobody goes back and checks. All all I can speak to is that this group just had such a, it was clear that the dedicated following would be there. And, you know, if you had, is there a counterfactual world in which we said, what we're actually, we're going to still be advertising driven and we're going to build out the ad tech infrastructure and the direct ad sales team and try to run at it. I mean, it's plausible, but of course you have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to build that out and then get to scale, right? Versus we know there is some, you know, it's not millions of people, but it's probably hundreds of thousands of people who would want to give some amount of money uh, to see this work. And, you know, that's just more predictable revenue. The cash situation is just a lot easier. We're not investing in, in front of uh, the revenue coming in. And so, yeah, it's sort of if you're willing to have modest aspirations, then uh, there's no reason why this can't, you know, you can't be generating revenue relatively quickly. Yeah. And modest doesn't have to be like too modest, right? I think when sometimes people, because <laughs> like, I, I don't, I've, Look, in media, like you can get inefficient really uh, quickly because the infrastructure that you need to put in place, like you mentioned, like, you know, the advertising infrastructure, it is, you know, as the tech people say, non-trivial. But there's also a sales infrastructure that is incredibly non-trivial. And you need the people out there selling, but then you also need the people putting together the proposals. And then also, oh, by the way, once you get the clients, you need to have the people like hand handholding the clients because like they're going to be a pain in the ass because in the history of clients they're all pain in the ass <laughs> and on and on and on and on and pretty soon like well over half the company has nothing to do with actually creating the content that is the whole point of the thing yeah i, I should i should say at this point that um we are not entirely against uh what we, i mean they're sponsorships they're not advertising i mean yeah. you go to our website you'll see our launch sponsor. You will is, take people's money, right? <laughs> well, look, our, our launch sponsor for, for the month is uh, is Warby Parker, 
and we're thrilled to have them as a sponsor. I think you know the, the sort of alignment of the brands makes a lot of sense. Um, and but we're not gonna. It's not, we're not moving into the programmatic ad space. Um, you know, we'll do some amount of direct selling when, when there are, uh, when we find brands that really feel like they get what we're doing, they get the voice, they want to be a part of this story. Um, so that might mean, you know, some months, some weeks we don't have that and some months we do, but it'll be relatively light touch. And to your point, I I don't want to build out that entire sales staff that that's, you know, incented on, on just putting as much onto the site as possible. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, like having like a membership based business model does not mean that like you have some sort of like religious thing that like there'll be no ads ever. Like I know like I get it from a marketing standpoint, you know, the information has done this. It's like, no, it's no ads. Yeah, they do sponsorships. They do branded content with Roku and stuff. This is not about. I, people do this all the time. BuzzFeed did it with like, oh, we'll only run native ads. It's like, okay, it's just marketing. You'll take people's money however they want. But I think the membership model has, you know, when you go membership first versus ads first, it just has um, a lot of benefits if you're gonna if you're looking to create um, quality and, like you said, not build a scaled media business. A lot of media businesses are not meant to be at a very large scale, and they're actually more profitable, I believe, at a smaller scale. Yeah, I think, honestly, one of our, to your point, there's different degrees of modesty, um, but we, yeah. we early on, one of our, the taglines we considered for the site was, you know, a modest company with modest goals. So there's no version of this where we talked about, uh, you know, blitz scaling, conquering the world. Blitz scaling. You know, Thank you for not doing that. <laughs> draining the ocean and killing God, like whatever your metaphor is, we were not chasing those. Uh, and, and, and still, right now, we're, we're approaching 30,000 paid subscribers. Uh, which is far ahead of schedule um, and, you know, lets us think a little bit bigger about how do we expand our, our newsroom and, and, you know, sort of fill out different coverage gaps that we might have. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the goal here is not to, not to chase, you know, a hundred thousand subscribers or, or, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers necessarily. It's, it's to do good work and, and sort of methodically gain uh, readers and, and, and paid subscribers as, as, as we can. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. So 30,000 subscribers, uh, 2 million in revenue? Uh, something like that. Yeah. Something I, like that. I mean, look, it's, it's not a very complicated uh, business model, right? Uh, I, I've interviewed candidates to join my operations I like team that. I like non-complicated. Non-com- uh, yeah. Can, can you know, estimate the full P&L for the first 12 months with, to like 20% accuracy with, with just a little bit of prodding. So it, it's not particularly complicated. Um, so yeah, we're we're in that range and, and feeling pretty good about uh, you know certainly we'll we'll be here next year and and, and the year after that. But uh, and when you treat what, once you treat and all of our uh, eighteen writers and editors and myself we're co owners in the business and we're we're sort of thinking of compensation as more like a law firm where yeah. uh, I mean an order of magnitude smaller, but we take a really mm-hmm. a small salary throughout the year and then we settle up. A couple times a year where we can pay it out but once you start treating that operating right. expenses as variable then you know there, there's no such like people keep asking oh what's the number where you guys are sustainable and, and the answer is you know we're, we're sustainable now it's just a matter of what what our, our, our team can tolerate in terms of their, their take-home compensation yeah although then you'll start to develop like uh, a second class of like the the people who aren't partners and that um well i i can speak to that i mean 
I, 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 my first job was like in some consulting firm that like I was clearly not a partner. And so I was like, it was very awkward when they had meetings and they were talking about like how to get down overhead costs. And I was one of them. <laughs> I, I should speak to <laughs> I that. Was like, I was like the furniture. Our, our <laughs> governance model is actually very, you know, at the moment, employees and shareholders are one and the same. But going forward, we still want the focus to be on employees. So everybody who joins um, will get uh, basically the same voting rights in the company and uh, the same uh, compensation uh, sharing as everybody else. Um, and we have total transparency in how much people are making, uh, mm. which uh, you know dr drives has driven some awkward conversations. But you're just getting that out, out at the beginning um, rather than than along the way. Um, and, and if anyone leaves the company, you're leaving with your equity stake, but it's actually just the um, economic uh, residuals. Let's say when, when uh, if, if we were to sell a company, you know, yeah. you own the 5% of that, but actually you don't have claims on the profit sharing or uh, voting rights. So it really is, we, we, we're conscious of, of that point you're saying of the second class yeah. citizens. There might always be a little bit of a feeling of, you know, mm -hmm. not, not being among, among the founding team, but as much as possible, it is employee-led and employee-focused. Right. And it's always a reaction to what I'm, I'm just, again, from the outside reading in, it was very clear that um, there was a situation where the people who are creating the content and therefore the value, and then there was the people who owned all the equity, which are the Great Hill partners and, and whatnot. Um, and there's always going to be tension that's built into capitalism. Um, but yeah. perhaps coming out of this, you know, there will be different structures. And I think people are, are thinking about that. Yeah. Uh, to, to put a really fine point on, on one example, um, we, we have it in the, in the operating agreement that what you would traditionally think of as board of director decisions, we have it as a full staff vote. So hiring and firing executives. Uh, I can be fired from my role with a two-thirds staff vote. Oh, and boy. some of my friends who, uh, you know, I, look, I, I went to business school. I worked Did you try to negotiate for three quarters? <laughs> it's like two-thirds sounds kind of low. Uh, I would argue that if you've lost two-thirds of, uh, of, uh, of the company, then you probably yeah. shouldn't be leading it anymore. But yeah, you know, I have friends who work in private equity or, or you know, are, are, are working in whatever sort of more classic capitalist structure. And they hear this and they say, that's insane. I, do, you, do you feel stressed out about it? And, you know, my answer is I, I think probably more executives, uh, more leaders should feel on their toes and beholden to you know, the experiences that their, their employees are having. And, and these are not, you know, quote unquote, like my employees, possibly. These are my co-owners. And uh, I absolutely every day should be doing right by them. Um, and so, uh, yeah, is it a little bit more stressful? Sure. But, uh, you know, I, they're all taking a chance on each other and, and they're taking a chance on me. And so I got to bet on myself, too. Yeah. And well, if this year has taught us anything, it's that like we all got to be on our toes, right? Yeah, exactly. So what is the, uh, what's the membership goal then for next year? I mean, you're at 30,000. We're at 30,000. And I assume that's, I mean, look, everyone does like this sort of discounting and whatnot, but like these, these are people paying. Yes. Not just right. on like a dollar. Like, uh, um, no, we, we have not broken open the discount code functionality on our subscription management service yet. Ah, you uh, got people, it. People expect it. It's like going to an e-commerce website. If you don't get 10% off, like, 
Well, we, we, that's a very common email uh, that we get because they see that functionality. It's just built onto the platform that the discount code thing is there and they write in and say, you know, what discount codes are there? And I'm, you know, I literally have not set that up because I do not want to track uh, discounting effectiveness at this early stage in our company. That's um, what people don't understand when they're just like, well, why don't you try this? Why don't you try this? Like, you do not know what that does to like the back end. Like when all of a sudden you like try to like try some something that people think would be neat in like a, a meeting. And then all of a sudden you've screwed up your entire back end and tracking and you can't even figure out if you're doing better or worse. Yeah, exactly. And I think right now we are, we have not spent a single dollar on uh, paid media. Uh, we're really just relying on earned media and, and, and word of mouth and, and our uh, writers and editors doing audience development you know, themselves. It's a very decentralized marketing strategy right now. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're still seeing good uh, uptake day to day. And we're getting emails all the time of people saying, you know, I was a big reader of you guys. I hadn't been on Twitter in a while. I just saw this today. I'm so excited you're back. And so there's just some amount of, okay. you know, could we. So you don't think you've hit the, hit the wall? Because, like, look, anyone who sets mm-hmm. up a subscription, I, I don't care if you go on to Substack or whatever, like you hit, you're like, oh, wow, this is like really taking off. And then you hit the, you hit the wall. Now it could be ten thousand, it could be thirty thousand, it could be three hundred, like. But everyone, and then it becomes a game of attrition, um, or just like you know, just yeah, right. We we are so early that one, we have not hit the wall yet, and two, we really don't have a sense of churn, right? We we we're two yeah. weeks into actually publishing right now, and churn numbers are very low. But that's that's because we're two yeah. weeks in, right? The, it, people haven't had the, enough opportunities to churn yet. Yeah, exactly. And we, it's the least representative set of subscribers, the ones who yeah. have been with us from the very beginning. So we just don't know yet. Um, and, and over the coming months, uh, you know, I don't know if it's going to be we feel like we hit a wall in, in four weeks or, or two months or six months. But at some point, we'll have to go do a more, you know, what all other publications are doing of, you know, managing your marketing funnel much more carefully and strategically. Yeah. At the moment, we have this luxury that uh, all of our writers and editors, you know, have this following that is still just sort mm-hmm. of coming around. And, and, and as, as they hear about it, they're, they're going to sign up. Yeah. No, I mean, that's uh, so what you didn't give me a number. What's the number for next year? hundred thousand. How's that? Uh, that is probably too <laughs> ambitious. I would say. <laughs> Come on, Jasper. Uh, I, I will. I you want to stay you, ahead of that two-third vote? Get, do a hundred thousand. I will. I will tell you that in all of our uh, financial modeling, uh, I'm using the Royal Hour. I mean, all the financial <laughs> modeling that I, I wrote. Um, my Excel. <laughs> yes, my Excel, uh, my sheet. Um, the sort of like dare to dream numbers were in the thirty thousand range by the end of 2020, and so we are ahead of schedule and. I mean, the answer is I don't have a number in my head because I haven't, you know, uh, uh, refilled out that pro forma. So, you know, wherever your next podcasting is going to be, I'll, I'll come on okay, in a couple good. months and we can talk it over. Well, let's do it. We'll go even deeper. Um, do you think we'll see more of these kind of independent, like, spin? Like, I, again, we're, I, I really do believe where media goes through these these periods of, like, bundling and rebundling and uh, unbundling and then rebundling and stuff like this. And... I feel like too much has been almost made of the sort of like the personal Substack thing um, for a lot of the reasons that we talked about. But I think this is like an interesting twist on that approach. Yeah. But do you think we'll see more of it or is this unique to, you know, Deadspin was a very unique brand. I think um, 
I don't know. The honest answer is I don't know if in a sort of national interest space, there will be a lot of uh, folks who can just follow our, our playbook here. I do think where there's a lot of opportunity is probably around um, local media, local newspapers. So yeah. we're, we're already following the footsteps. Like Ali already built websites for Colorado Sun and Book Club Chicago, which were started by former employees of uh, the Denver Post and uh, DNA Info Chicago. Um, and so I could definitely see uh, more local properties as local newspapers go out of business uh, because of private equity consolidation or, or the ad models uh, no longer really working. Uh, there may very well be groups of writers who band together and pursue that model and rely on the thousands of readers you know, within their, their local community uh, to support it. And so I, I'm pretty optimistic on, on that front. Yeah. I mean, I'm, an, I'm a new resident to Miami Beach and I would... I would probably pay for, um, I already pay for the Miami Herald, but I, I'm always complaining about the Miami Herald because of the autoplay videos. Um, they're just like, they're insane. Our readership knows that well. <laughs> knows that problem exactly. previously. <laughs> that was, so like uh, you guys have vowed, I guess, never to have uh, autoplay video, right? I mean, that was like, that was one of the uh, sensitive points. Uh, you know, we haven't explicitly done that, but I'm comfortable it's not in a charter. Making- Making news here that we yeah. will not have autoplay videos ever on Defector.com. Yeah, I, you start layering on the uh, the the autoplays, Jasper. You're gonna you're gonna get closer to that two third vote. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this has been fun. Um, I want to thank you, Jasper. Um, thanks for doing the final podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, Brian. It's been a pleasure.